Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Ramble, the full ramble. And I've got a fellow rambler with me. I know this because, well, there was a brief moment in time where we lived together with my guest here, Luke, with a very similar last name to mine, Primus, <laughs> or exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, we had we had many wonderful conversations, and it it inspired me to invite him onto the podcast because I think he has a lot to share. And I think everybody can learn something from his his journey, his his wisdom, you know, his field of study. And this is very interesting and in keeping with what was originally going to be the format of the ramble, which was talking with my family. I had thought about initially calling the podcast talking with my family because I had so many interesting family members. And I, I was just going to keep it, keep it there. Uh, so with that, Luke, you are the fifth Primus to grace the Ramble podcast. <laughs> so welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I feel honored to be the fifth. <laughs> I'm trying to think now, who are the, who are the first four? I know you. Yeah. What's the list here? So I've had my mom. I've had my mm-hmm. dad. I've had my wife. I've mm-hmm. had Ryan. Right. Right. And, and, and this isn't, you know, there's, it's not totally random. You know, my mom, uh, life coach, my father, uh, you know, we talked all about music and his artistry, uh, Gianna, we, you know, her shamanic practice, I guess I should say Mm -hmm. she's been, she's been studying to become a shaman. Actually, they call it animist, uh, her, at least that's what her instructor calls it. So we, we, Mm -hmm. we've delved into that. Ryan, um, you're talking about the rewilding in conjunction with our hunting show. So there's, there's been context to all of these things. Uh, right. But for yourself, you know, one, you're, you're at the telltale end of a very long journey to be, uh, to, to achieve your masters of counseling. That's correct. Mm-hmm. No, I just, this is just, just, just outlined as clinical counselor or, or what that looks like. So people understand the context. Yeah, so in BC and kind of well, in most places in Canada except for except for Alberta, um, clinical counselors are people that have gotten master's degrees. So sometimes that's a master um, a master of arts in psychology. So if you went to a public university like UBC or SFU, that's what you would end up with. Um, and then there's these other kind of variations um, on that, but they're all master's level programs. And so I took a program through City University of Seattle. They have a campus in Vancouver, um, have had for the last 20 years or so. And they've they've built a really practitioner-focused program um, for people that are not necessarily interested in a career in research or academia, but they want to do counseling in the community. They want to address, um, mm-hmm. they want to address specific local needs, et cetera. 
Um, and that really fit the bill for me. So I, um, I went into this program and it's a master of counseling program. And so that's been a two year journey. And before that I was, um, in preparation specifically for that program, I was doing my bachelor of arts in psychology. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of, I had a collection of credits from various, various endeavors from the past. <laughs> I once thought I would be a history teacher. Um, I also at one point thought I would be an electrician. Um, I get, the, that, I get the history. I get the history teacher part because you have, you have a mind, I think that that is bent towards uh, the curiosity of, of history and, and how things were and how that relates to how things are today. At least that's my, my sense of, of you. So I could have, you would have been a great history teacher. Uh, Thank you. you would have been a great researcher for that matter too, but you know, you've decided to go into the practitioner side of it. And what just, did you, did you decide on a speciality of which you would practice clinical counseling or is it, is it broad? Is it, there's trauma, is it addiction? What specifically? It's broad because, and you know, I wasn't sure at first, I, I really wanted to go into this program with, with an open mind, um, as far as how I would end up honing my skills and, and specializing. Um, and when I was doing my practice, my practicum in Vancouver, that seemed to make a lot of sense. It seemed like everyone was kind of talking in terms of what are you specializing in? Who, what kind of people do you want to work with? And I, I really stuck with my original intention of, no, I'm, I will specialize in the future. If, you know, it starts to become clear to me through practice that there's people I, I just really shine with people that I do really good work with. It would make sense to do that. But in the beginning stages, I, you know, because I didn't have a, a lot to go on in terms of what kind of a counselor am I going to be, you know, mm-hmm. like what really prepares you to be a counselor except to counsel people. And I really hadn't done that. Can I ask you, I, I want to do two things here, you know, with regards to what prepares you to be a counselor. I have a question there, uh, but I also have a question I'm going to ask first, which is, can you just for very, you know, in layman's terms, describe the difference between what a, cl- a clinical counselor is and can do versus a psychiatrist versus a coach, which is is obviously not a clinical psychologist or counselor, but I think that maybe the lines sometimes get blurred and, and, and maybe it would be helpful to understand the differences. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's actually, this is a big part of what I'm, I'm not doing a thesis. I'm doing a non-thesis, which is called a capstone for all the non-thesis master's programs. And my thesis, my essay is really all about this. It's, it's about how confusing it is for somebody to approach the field of counseling and psychology, because there's all these different labels for different people and what do they all do? Um, and so, yeah, a psychiatrist is somebody that is first a doctor they've they've been trained in med school um, and then they specialize in the medicine of psychiatry and so they not to not to paint it too broadly but they tend to view 
mental health problems as biological disorders of the brain, or, you know, they talk a lot about chemical imbalances. Um, and those are all metaphorical ways of speaking about problematic experiences people are having. And so they view it as biological problem and they treat it as such by giving pills to theoretically balance the the imbalances in the brain so in other words so it's not, a, it's not a, a psychologist a psychologist does not believe that mental health is environmental in any way it's not it's not life circumstances it's not uh anything that's driving it it's it's, it's purely biological you know already in the brain you were kind of you were born with it and it was going to happen no matter what. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an oversimplification of course, but, <laughs> but that's, and, and just to clarify, that's psychiatrist. So oh, they're psychiatrists are the ones who, who medicate. Um, they, they diagnose and they medicate. So they will, they will tend to um, look for what is the specific abnormality, AKA what is the specific diagnosis this person has. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I've personally had a psychiatrist for s several years and he wasn't just, um, a medication dispenser. Like he did ask, he, you know, we would book at, he would spend an hour with me. Um, he was never in a rush. He would ask me lots of questions about my life and circumstances. So it's, you know, there are very human types of people that become psychiatrists and, you know, they don't just do medication, but psychiatrists all prescribe medication right. by and large, like that's generally their function. Um, and the other thing too, is that in, because of how bogged down the health system is here, it really puts psychiatrists in a position where they are just spending 15 minutes with clients because they don't, because there's just so much demand. Right. And so they do end up just being people that give medication. So it's not just by design, it's also, you know, responding to what's going on yeah. in the world around us. There's a there's an entire podcast that be, could be had around, you know, the, the nature of Canada's medical system today and, and, and the pressures on it. And I imagine that's, a, uh, that's, you know, both south of the border here and, and in much of the Western world in general, that's... That's a, that's a problem for, you know, for another day, another chat. So clinical counselor, what's then describe that? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, so there's the psychiatrist and also the psychologist, and that's a different field. They're not medical doctors. Psychologists are people that they will counsel a little bit more typically than a psychiatrist. Um, and they can provide diagnosis, but they don't prescribe medication. Um, so you can get a, you can get an official diagnosis from a psychologist, but they tend to specialize because they, again, the demand thing. So they, they, they tend to work with more complex cases. Um, and then clinical counselors, that's the, that's kind of the provincial designation here. We call ourselves clinical counselors, but for simplicity's sake, counselors. Um, you can be a certified counselor, a clinical counselor. Some people don't really like to go with the word clinical. But basically, what all of us do is we primarily talk to people. Um, and our primary service that we offer is talk therapy in, in a lot of different forms. 
And for a lot of different reasons, you know, we engage with it in, in lots of different ways. But ultimately, counselors and psychotherapists, therapists, these are kind of all terms that we use for people that you go speak with um, when you are having a problem in your life, a difficult experience, whether it's emotional or thought-based or, you know, impulsive behavior that you can't control. A lot of times people, the idea of going to counseling has become so popular um, just through TV and movies Mm -hmm. that people kind of know now, you know, it's becoming a lot less controversial that like when something is going on in your life that's difficult, you know, it's not uncommon for a friend to say, you should go see someone. And so that's kind of a, and we kind of all know what that means. Like, oh, you should talk to someone. Yeah. And it's really, it's really interesting because, you know, we live in a world of uh, a present moment of, of absolute access to so much information and there's Instagram counselors, you know, and there's YouTube counselors, there's podcasts and there's, there's podcasters who, who are very intelligent and they, and they certainly share their traumas and their experiences. And yet they, there's sort of two sides to that, right? One side is you kind of feel like, oh, well, I just got the advice I think I needed because my situation sounds like that. Um, or, Two, it's yes, it, my situation sounds like that. And I think I got the advice I needed, but I should probably still go talk to somebody that's actually a professional in this field. And uh, I keep I keep saying, you know, here that's like, I don't play a doctor on, on, on podcast or on TV. Like I'm just expressing my experience. Please go talk <laughs> to somebody who actually knows the the frames around these things and and and, and the history and the and the studies and all the different components that can really lead to help. And I I wanted to dive into that a little bit more uh, later on, Mm -hmm. but the last, the last piece is just, so with coach, a coach is, as I understand it, you know, they're just sort of forward looking. They are not allowed to go into your past. They're not allowed to assess your trauma per se. Is that, um, they're just kind of, they're motivating you from the present moment problems onward. Is that fair to, uh, assess? I w- yeah. I think you're probably more of an authority on coaching <laughs> because you've actually done it, but that sounds true to what I understand. Yeah. I do know people that are registered clinical counselors that are also life coaches mm-hmm. and they, they differentiate between those two practices with their clients. And I, I think it I think it can be an important differentiation. I also think that most clinical counselors at some point are are forward looking and are talking about solutions and specific, you know, specific um, specific things that the person can do to take steps towards their goals. These lines um, blur so these lines blur so so much that it becomes you know when you dive into the work mm-hmm. it becomes hard as a coach you know coming from my experiences doing that as you mentioned to to say you know what are the problems that might be causing this present moment situation that we're dealing with and not to go back there and so much of the work in in understanding and tapping into spirituality, mythology, et cetera. You know, again, these, these lines really blur and you end up going very, you know, much back into the past. 
but I've always always been a propo- uh, proponent of of counselors. You know, I've had sports psychologists, I've had counselors throughout my life, and you know, the question that I'm going to go back that I'm going back to here was twofold. Uh, you know, one when you decide to become a counselor, are is is a lot of that based on a life experience that was was quite challenging and maybe resolved uh and and you you say hey i learned something this really helped me i want to help other people because this was very powerful i know that i know that happens a lot with coaches where coaches become coach co- people who were coached become coaches through that experience right is is just so impactful that that's the difference that they decide they want to make you know, is is that true for you? Was there a life experience that led you to want to become a counselor? And the second part of that question is, like, do you continue to counsel yourself now that you have all the tools to to counsel, or is that really challenging to do? Mm. Well, I've I've fully actualized my destiny actually joel so i don't actually i don't need to i'm just kidding well there you yeah, go no i i <laughs> do do enlighten us please yeah um i can't believe you didn't notice from the time that we were living together um, i did i did notice I yeah did. the way i kind of levitate yeah yeah um no i i do still counsel myself but i also i also still see a counselor Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been as regularly lately as I want to, but, um, it's always, it's always important to me to be seeing a counselor from time to time. I don't necessarily think it's something I, I, I don't always do it, you know, week after week or every two weeks. It's not a regular thing for me at this point, but it's an important thing for mm-hmm. sure. I have tools, but really what a counselor provides is an objective. I mean, it's an objective perspective, but it's also a willingness to provide unfettered attention and listening to the client. And that's something um, that I can provide to myself in some ways, but there's, there is really something to be said for, you know, for having that level of commitment from another person. Absolutely. Um, right. The, the, yeah. the, the space that somebody holds for you versus the idea that like I can do it all myself even if I can there's something so human so grounding so comforting in somebody holding that space for you uh mm-hmm. and just listening and obviously then you know providing insight objective insight into that into your blind spots right cuz let's face it i mean it's 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 very hard to cancel ourselves while our critic is yelling our inner critic is yelling at us <laughs> you know obscene <laughs> making fun of us and teasing us and shaming us and, and, uh, and having somebody there to kind of catch that is, is, is helpful. So, you know, did you, but you know, going back to that, just that other thing, was there something for you that happened? Mm -hmm. You were like, "Uh, this is, this is the thing that's now inspired my desire to help people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, before I wanted to be a counselor, I also (laughs) add this to the list. I also wanted to be a pastor and I was for a short period of time, just, yeah, a very, a very short blip in my life. When I had first moved down to the lower mainland, I was, I was pursuing that work and I eventually did it for a little bit. 
And I realized while I was doing that, like I had gone into that work partly because of my religious and spiritual orientation, but also um, because I was deeply interested in I, the process of life, I guess, like the experience of life and understanding it better, um, understanding the struggles that people go through, how universal the struggles tend to be. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying as well, history, like really diving into what is the story of humanity? What is evolution? What are all these? So really trying to understand the human experience, the human condition, that was all very important to me. And, and it was really what was driving me in life when I was wanting to do religious work. And then I had a bit of a crisis of faith, partly because of things that were going on in the church that I was witnessing, and partly just because of big questions that I was asking about the world around me and my own experience with it, things that religion was not answering very well. And so in that do you, crisis, do you mean religion was not answering very well in terms of the denomination that, that you were practicing, but maybe more broadly speaking, an inquiry into a religion or, 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 or broadening the texts of what you read could, could have answered that question. Mm. It's just a, a point of curiosity for me. Uh, no. But, and it's, it's a, it's a great question because I think it, it kind of, it, it sets the stage for talking about my journey and how it correlates with Carl Jung, which is kind of, you know, the thing that I, <laughs> the thing that I have a lot to talk about. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. And yeah. So at that point, I, I think you're right. I didn't, I had a very shallow, very situation specific understanding of Christianity, which is what I was raised in. Um, I was raised you know, in an evangelical church, in a, in a charismatic Pentecostal ish kind of a church. Singing um, with hands in the air. Is that what you mean by charismatic? Hands. Yeah. Put your hands in the air. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hallelujah kind of stuff. Yeah, that sounds, yeah. I've always wanted to go to one of those. Yeah. Well, it's still, it's still in operation. If you want to go check out my childhood church next time, I'm um, in, next time I'm up North. <laughs> yeah. That'll, that'll really round out the Northern experience. For you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was what I was raised in. And I, it, I knew that there were big questions about the world and about life and about myself that were not being answered satisfactorily for me yeah. at that time. And, and so it created a crisis and it didn't feel like something I chose. It felt like, yeah. um, I heard somebody say once it, it feels like, you know, when you lose your faith, it feels like the floor beneath you is just taken away and you're falling and you don't know when you're going to land or what it's going to be like, <laughs> but, and that, that was what it felt like. But that's um, and, and, and if we go into the into the other side of that, you know, that's when the real journey begins, right? Is mm -hmm. and can you find your way back there? And I have I have one more question before we get into young. You brought up young, um, you know, fascinating, fascinating person um, that you know shaped shaped really the world you know we live in today in many ways, uh, specifically your you know your your section of the world, but. This may be too big to answer now, and if it is, we can put a pin in it and, and get to it at the end if it is. But have you found that as you've studied um, counseling and, and uh, psychology, 
And in relation to this greater search for from all the different angles of, you know, this universal struggle that we have and the different perspectives that reach that spiritually, mystically, scientifically, have you found inside counseling and, and psychology that it's, it, it in and of itself is a tight box that, that also doesn't provide all the answers somebody um, like yourself is looking for does it does it fall into the trap of too much science almost boxes itself in with this kind of scientism view where it's almost religious in the sense that it provides a framework that it doesn't allow outside of um exploration outside of which as i understand it is one of the criticisms that carl jung has uh, or his critics would, would put on him is that his practice of psychology um was more of a pseudoscience that 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 bled too far into into mysticism and, and other things like that. So, have you how, how have you found that? Feel free to answer it in a way that doesn't contempt, condemn you from uh, against your peers. <laughs> yeah, I still want to. I still want to get my master's degree at the end of this. <laughs> yeah, no, it's there is absolutely you. You brought up scientism and. Again, it's a big part of what I'm writing about in my final paper is kind of the ideologies that exist within this discipline and kind of like what ideology, what sorts of ideologies are psychiatry and and as an extension counseling and whatnot. What are, you know, what ideologies are they under? And scientism, I think, is the I. To put it simply, I think scientism is the idea that science can answer every question mm-hmm. um, about life. You know that that science alone, and science being you know empirical science, so theories based on what we can observe with our senses. Scientism is the idea that that by observation we can know everything about the universe in which we live, and that's you know that i think a lot of people a lot of philosophers and a lot of psychologists and jung is one of them had had a problem with that perspective and jung for example like he was he initially was a freudian i guess you could say like he was a peer of of sigmund freud and he was he was in that circle of people um, and he eventually had to break from him because the dogma of Sigmund Freud did not allow flexibility and it did not allow room for the sorts of things that that Carl Jung was realizing in his own research. It wasn't so much just philosophies that he was thinking up. Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud were phenomenologists, which means that they were they were studying um they were studying the human experience in all of its aspects. So they were not, both of them were not strictly, like they were not empirical, em, empiricists in the sense of um, just relying on what they could see and what they could hear. They were also looking inwardly into their own experiences and making, making, you know, they called it making discoveries. Like Jung made discoveries about the mind um, partly by what he was hearing and seeing from his clients, 
but correlating that with what he was experiencing in himself. And so yeah. that was, that's obviously very, it's a very different way of looking at the world and even thinking about like, what can we know about humanity, the human experience? Jung was operating on a plane that said, you know, um, empiricist, empirical science cannot answer all of those questions. We do need to observe our own inner experiences that cannot be directly observed. Mm -hmm. So it's not verifiable. Like I, mm -hmm. I'm experiencing something different than what you're experiencing and we can't verify that it's the same thing. And so it is, you know, he talks about it as um, reaching into the darkness and doing your best to kind of comprehend what it is, you know, that makes up the human conscious experience. Um so this is this is young. That's what young was. Young, young, yeah. And and he and he differentiated from Freud when it came to their understanding of the unconscious. But you know, a part of what was going on there is um there was a desire and there was there was a push within psychiatry at that time to become recognized and respected by the field of medicine. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted, they wanted to figure out how to talk about and how to conceptualize human experience in a way that could be respected by medicine. And so that, you know, that tells you a lot about um, where we started to get the idea that pills could solve problems of life, you know, right. like sadness and grief. And I saw this advertisement on Facebook yesterday for, um, a pill that could cure heartbreak. So like <laughs> specifically <laughs> targeting, you know, specifically targeting heartbreak. Like if you're tired of thinking about your ex, we have mm -hmm. a pill for you. And this is serious. Like that's, yeah. that's the pharmaceutical industry at work. Is that is, is advertising that? I mean, that let, listen, like let's, let's be intentional to come back to that because I yeah. think that yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's quite important, but let's stay on young for you uh, for a second here. So not for a second, for, 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 for a few more minutes here. So the, just to, to, to complete the fracture of Jung's and Freud's relationship, the idea was, was their understanding of the, the unconscious um, or, you know, the, the, the experience, the inner experience, was there anything else, um, you know, didn't, did Freud not spend a lot of time sort of emphasizing sexuality and um and during development and stuff like that or or am mm -hmm. I mistaken there no that's exactly it yeah. freud was freud was of his whole um framework was that um was that problems like depression and anxiety and psychosis all of these were based in childhood sexual conflict um so like it sexual sorts of experiences that are had by you know um infants um and there's i do think a lot of people you, hear that mean, and they think do you mean abuse or do you mean something else? no not necessarily not necessarily it's 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 we we i can't necessarily go i'm not an expert on freud yeah. and on his theories but my understanding of it is it's not we're not talking about sex the way that we understand it you know, as experienced by adults, it's, it's the fact that infants are 
on some level, according to Freud, sexual beings, and they do have forms of sexual experience, aka sexual pleasure in their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and his whole thing was that um, because of the the inherent reliance on the parent figures, um, there's all this conflict um, because of you know the pairing of sexual desire with contact from parents Mm -hmm. and it's you know it's we're not going to do a podcast about that because nobody wants to hear about it and that's why that's why it's not um it's not something that's widely talked about and that's not to say that there isn't some truth in what he's saying but where Jung differentiated himself was he he really didn't see unconscious conflicts that way he had a much and yeah, we can spend. We could probably spend the rest of the podcast just talking about what was, what was Jung's perspective on the unconscious, mm-hmm. um, and how did it, how did it? So Freud, according to Jung, let's just to put it simply, Freud did not take the unconscious very seriously. He just thought of it as chaos and conflict, and really just he really just something that was kind of pathological to the human being not really something to be studied in its own right, not something that, you know, had immense value for our understanding. Um, And Jung's research led him to take it a lot more seriously and to really devote most of his career post-Freud to studying the unconscious. So what would you describe, Um, Luke, as his, as then Jung's sort of main contribution to the field uh, if it if it had to do with the unconscious, what specifically was it about that that he shared that you know that people took seriously for a while or forever mm. into you know his reputation, the reputation of his research today? But you know what was that contribution? Yeah, good question. You know who Alan Watts is, right? I do. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's he's, um, he's, he's, he's the best. He's the goat. He's the spiritual yeah. goat, man. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, he's the he's the guy that you know helps all of us with all of us you know young white guys with anxiety problems to learn how to meditate and how to you know find ourselves in a new kind of a way. Yeah, I mean, we, we all want to be him, right? Smoking, drinking, philosophizing, being spiritual, probably having giant orgies. You know, that's yeah. I I don't I'm not saying that was fact, but that's certainly the vibe he gave off. <laughs> so yeah, you listen to some of his some of his talks on YouTube, and you you get the sense that there's all kinds of things going on in that room, <laughs> right? and you kind of want to you kind of want to know what they are. <laughs> But Alan Watts was a, he was not just a huge fan of Carl Jung. He also knew him at one point. He had conversations with him. And I was pretty much, I would say, like introduced to Carl Jung, obviously not personally, but it was Alan Watts that, that kind of opened me up to the philosophy of Jung. Um, and he basically described the impact that Jung had not only on him, but on, you know, Western culture more broadly. Um, And it was really, for Watts, it was about helping him to realize and accept how Western he really was, like how deeply ingrained in his his DNA was Western culture. Mm. Um, And, you know, Watts was, he was a brilliant philosopher, spent a lot of his 
he was also an Episcopal priest at one point. Um, but he, he spent most of his career looking at and talking about Eastern philosophies and Eastern religion. Um, and he said what Carl Jung helped him to really appreciate. And I really, really resonate with this on a deep level is to appreciate the depth and the value of Western culture in terms of its art, um, in terms of its spirituality, in terms of its mysticism, um, its mystery teachings. These are all things that, you know, Carl Jung spent the last 40 or 50 years of his life just deeply immersed in. Um, because again, coming back to the unconscious, he, he believed that much of what was going on in the personal on, you know, the, the unconscious struggles of the individual was deeply connected with struggles that were taking place in the culture as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, can you, can you expand on that just a little bit if you're able to, because I think that that's a really fascinating and potentially salient point. And interestingly enough, I think one of the criticisms of young, if, if I, if I'm correct, was the fact that he he may be overly stereotyped and was reductionistic and, and very culturally biased to the West. And so it's, it's interesting that he helped Alan Watts sort of understand that part of his, the end of the ethos of, of, of who he was and what he was saying. And so how do you define that Western point of view so that there's just some context as to what that means? Is that something you could explain? Yeah, to to some extent, I'm I'm again. It's he, Jung's expertise is so so far ranging, and the things that he gets into, it's um, I can talk a little bit about all of it, I think. But he really, so he he has extensive um, and extensive collected works, and I've skimmed through a lot of it. A lot of it has to do with with the religion of the West and the mythology of um of pre the pre-christian west so not just not just the religion aka not just christianity which is kind of the you know the official yeah. religion of the west but also um hermeticism um gnosticism i think you know if i was to say some people wonder whether carl jung was a christian and i don't think he ever professed to be one um but he identified very closely with Gnosticism, which is, that's a whole other podcast too. But basically he was, he was a student of mystery teachings. He was a student of, um, he wanted to know all of it. He wanted to understand the occult um, and he wanted to understand kind of as far back as possible, you know, as far back as we have material to study, he wanted to know um, what sorts of things have been coming out of the coming out of the unconscious within Western culture. Um, Which again is, this is, this is part of the criticism that he faced was this, this curiosity towards the occult and the mysticism and, and just, you know, people, you know, science and medicine really didn't vibe with that. <laughs> you know, For sure. Yeah. To say it, you know, kind of basically, you know, it's not, that's not their jam to, to go into the occult, but he, he went there and he yeah. went, went there with a scientific mind as well as a, a sort of 
philosophic um, philosopher's mind, right? A mystic's mind. He went there with all these different hats and he tried to approach it. Yeah. Cause he, cause he, cause he understood that um, he understood that all of these, you know, the Bible, for example, um, there's, well, not just the Bible, all these religious teachings, spiritual teachings, whether you think they were written by one person or by many people, um, and then just kind of, you know, combined together and, and, you know, eventually turned into what we're reading today. There was, you know, these are treasures that have come out of, that have come out of the minds of, um, people within Western culture. And when I say Western culture, I'm kind of like, he's, he's talking about Greek thought, Greek mythology, um, and going further back. Um, but Jung also understood that at, you know, when you go further back at some point, you're talking about ancient mythology, which is not really, and I, somebody, somebody's gonna, somebody's gonna get mad at me for saying this, because it might not even, I don't know if what I'm saying is like, it might be completely oversimplified, but there he's going further back to where he is saying um, East and West is not really a distinction at some point. Like there is a common human origin. And so like this Sumerian, idea, like the Sumerian. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so that was, you know, so Jung was, Jung was the beginning of the 20th century. He was born in the 19th century. Um, and so he, their understanding of genetics and all of that, and even culture, culture and the history of humanity, anthropology, it was, it was limited. He had a different understanding. Um, we know more today than um, about human lineages than he did back then. But the way he understood um, the unconscious, the Western unconscious and Western consciousness um, was that, you know, at some point East broke from West and you do have Eastern religions and you have Western religions. That's, you know, that's a pretty clear, there's a pretty clear division there. Um, and he talks also about Eastern religion and Eastern philosophy. He, one of his volumes is psychology of religion, East and West. And so he does a lot of comparison work and he's, what he's doing is he's showing how um, in religious imagery um, and in, mythology and in religious doctrine, all of these things, um, we can see that humans are painting for themselves a picture of what is within them. And so within the mind, within the psyche of mankind, there is the image of God. There is the, you know, within the Western religious mind, there is also this notion of Satan. And so there's, he he's basically trying to show that these concepts that we have um, in some sense created, he, and this is another thing is he's not saying um, that God is just a psychological concept. He's what he's saying is he's like, I'm not a theologian. I'm not here to answer whether or not God actually exists or if he's just in our minds, so to speak. Right. But what he's, what he's saying is I can show through my research that some of these concepts like God, the devil, um, the, you know, God, you know, God coming to earth as a man, you know, there's certain motifs and there's certain things that show up in religious imagery and in religious concepts that 
um, because of their universality um, and because of the fact that they show up in people's dreams and in people's fantasies, he basically, yeah, spent 40 or 50 years trying to show through his research that these are things that are within us. So you, um, used, you used the word, they're within us, but you used the word, you know, that we the painted, you said we painted, or he, his, his view was that this was sort of painted by us. And that, that calls to mind, he, so he, he rejected the notion that the human mind was a blank slate at birth, if I'm correct. Oh, right? yeah. Absolutely. And, and he, you know, he, there's an unconscious, there's, bio, there's a biological aspect of our, of our ancestors. Um, and he, so he framed this, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, this sort of collective unconscious that we, we come here with, uh, there's, this is made up of three components. There's the ego, there's the personal unconscious, and there's the, there's the collective unconscious. And Mm -hmm. within this, there are all these different archetypes. (laughs) Yeah. And this is going to start to get get confusing well yeah and maybe and yeah because i also understand freud had archetypes too but their their archetypes differ and and you know i I know that's i know that a lot of people also this is where maybe where the reductionists and the stereotype uh criticisms come in is because these archetypes put people put things in a box and 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 hopefully we can get to the the importance of archetypes but which do you want to tackle first do you want to tackle just a definition of what you know based on his definition of the ego the personal unconscious the collective and then maybe yeah. how the archetypes fit into this is that does that would that work yeah i should i should try and explain what he thinks the human mind is really composed of mm-hmm. or what what the human psyche is really composed of um so the collective unconscious yeah to him Um, The collective unconscious contains, like you said, ancestral memory. So imagery and symbols and themes that essentially come down to us from our ancestors. And so it's like a, it's like a collective human memory in a way. And so that answers the question about the blank slate. Definitely not. Um, He says basically that we're born with, um, we're born with a lot of, a lot of stuff actually just downloaded and shared amongst all people. And so there's the collective unconscious, but before the collective unconscious, there's also um, the personal unconscious. So yeah, Jung and Freud had different ways of kind of talking about some of these concepts, um, but they both talk about the ego and the ego is basically the center of of human consciousness. So it's the part of us that we are aware of. And it usually kind of corresponds to um, the perspective we have of ourselves as individuals. It's like, yeah, it's, it's the individual as they are conscious of themselves. Is that, is that, Um, is the ego, the voice in the head that talks to us according to Jung? It's one of them. Yeah. It's one of them. And then the personal, the personal unconscious unconscious is the, is the part of us, the, the deeper part of us that we aren't always tapped into. We're always tapped into the ego and the collective unconsciousness is the the broader shared ancestral history that we're all tapping into, that we tap into through dreams and, and, and different things like that. Is that a, is, or no, am I way, way off? 
No, you're 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 on the money. Okay. Um, the personal the personal really unconscious. The dark. <laughs> <It's really scary. laughs> I'm just saying words at this point. No, yeah, the personal unconscious is has more to do with our own personal memories, um, our own experiences um, on Earth, and like the learning the learning that we do in our own lives. Um, and the collective unconscious would be something deeper than that. Um, and it's within the collective unconscious. And first of all, Freud did not, he had, it was, it was Jung saying, I've discovered the collective unconscious that basically made Freud turn his back on Jung. Like that was too far. The collective unconscious is essentially in Jung's perspective. That's where the archetypes reside. They are a shared phenomenon and they basically, they are cultural forces um, that work within us as individuals, and they are cultural forces that are at work in culture more broadly, you know, in and a collective. Are those Eastern versus Western archetypes or are they universal in Jung's mind? Jung's mind. You know, I'm, I don't have a great answer for that. Okay. I think because that, again, I think that comes back to what was his conception back then of, um, of human ancestry and whether or not, yeah, what, whether or not we all share. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure. No, that's about, okay. I'm not exactly I mean, sure let's, about that. Let's try. I, I hope I'm not moving too fast here, but I wanted to. No, 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 not at all. I have, I have an answer. I have an answer to, um, to uh, just kind of, no. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to bridge the ideas that Jung had of, of the ego, the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious into what Jungian therapy was, is, um, I guess it's, you know, I understand it's still practiced today, even if it's not totally accepted by the scientific community and how that therapy relates to these, uh, you know, these ego um, versus conscious versus collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. And how is that relevant to people who are trying to understand and heal themselves and, or as I understand, you know, in Jungian words, find the real self, find their real self rather than mm -hmm. the self that they present to the outside world, which I think is the ego. Is there, is there a way you can kind of tackle, you know, those, those three things within his therapy practices and how that, how that works and, and how that relates to you know somebody going through a process of healing and self-discovery? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Jung was always a practicing clinician in the sense that he he always worked with people, and that was always a big part of his research is talking to people. And like a like Freud, um, you know, the psychoanalyst, um, a lot of what that looked like was he sat and he listened and he said very little. Um, Jung probably would have been a little bit more talkative in his practice than Freud, I would imagine. And over time, he became a lot more, um, a lot more creative. You know, there was a lot of art therapy that took place in Jung's practice. Um, and part of that was because of his own, his own process of growth and healing that he was going through. And so he, he tended to view it as, um, uh, something that he was working on with people. And he was, from what I've read, he was very transparent in the sense of um, he he was a brilliant, and this again is what, 
um, this is based on an Alan Watts reflection on Carl Jung, was that he he had such a because Jung had connected with and accepted so much of the darkness within himself, the parts of himself that um, that he had at one point considered so unacceptable. Um, he was able to accept the darkness in other people. And that, according to Watts, is what made him such a brilliant therapist because there was just nothing a person could say um, or do that would turn him off. And one thing Jung talked about was it's not enough um, as a therapist. It's not enough just to theoretically be okay with um theoretically be okay with you know whatever it is you're hearing from your client and it's not okay it's not enough to just pretend to be okay you have to on a you know on a soul level if you are not able to accept what is being presented to you by your client as part of themselves that will affect the therapeutic relationship and so jung basically just to get into the the way that he conceptualized his work he talked about he talked about the process of growth and healing as he called it individuation. And so bringing it back to the archetypes, there's Jung's four main archetypes are the persona, the shadow, the anima and the animus two of two sides of the same coin and the self. So the persona is the, you know, it's the mask that we wear, you know, in, in our lives, we have to be different things for different people. We have to, you know, you have to be a podcaster. You are also an entrepreneur. You're also a father. Those are different masks that you wear. Those are, you know, and so that's not in a negative sense. Just no, in, not in a negative. Yeah, it, it's it's just it's a very real part of how we construct our our identity. We learn how to present ourselves in a certain way to accomplish the goals that we need to accomplish. <laughs> we we learn how to be the person we need to be so that we receive the love that we need in relationships and to be the employee that we need <laughs> to be able to retain employment. So that's, that's one of the archetypes. And so the idea there is that that's a, that's a part of us that has in some sense, its own agency. We're not necessarily trying, we're not going about our day consciously, always trying to be a certain way for certain people, but um, that is a process at work in all of us all of the time. And does the persona um, reside in the ego or the personal unconscious or the collective unconscious? Um, it, all of the above? it has the, it, it has the potential to be in the, un, in, I would say the personal unconscious or the ego. Got it. Okay. Um, it depends on how, it depends on how conscious you are of what you're doing really. <laughs> um, yeah, I understand. Yeah. And, and, and so then there's the shadow, which, um, and again, just to be clear, a lot of these Jungian concepts are not super clear. And again, that's why a lot of it hasn't been picked up by mainstream psychological viewpoints, because there was a lot of work to do after Jung's life to bring clarity to some of the things he was talking about. And there has been a lot of um, work that's been done since his who, lifetime. Who is... Who today is the best? The Jungian expert, yeah, Jungian expert practitioner. You know, is it that that the people can dive into to help? Yeah, go further. I 
I really like um, Dr. Lionel Corbett, um, C-O-R-B-E-T-T. He he is faculty at Pacifica University in California, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of, that's kind of the center for um, a lot of Jungian study um, that's going on nowadays. And Dr. Lionel Corbett's old um, and he's probably spent most of his life or a lot of his life studying Jung and, st- and being a Jungian um, analyst. So kind of practicing along the same lines. Um, and he he's on YouTube. He's prolific on YouTube, and his talks are fascinating. I've learned is, a lot from from listening to him. Is Jordan Peterson a Jungian expert or a Jungian? Um, I wouldn't say he's a Jungian expert. He's a he's a psychologist that that has definitely leaned leaned on the teachings of Jung in a lot of ways, and I think he um, he's definitely done, yeah. I don't know if he's an expert no, on Jung specifically, though. And I don't know if he would, I don't know that he would, he would like, he I don't think he talks enough about Jung nowadays for me to think that he is. Like, it seems like he's a little bit more broad than that. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, you know, Dr. Clarissa Pinkett, Dr. Cl- Dr. Clarissa Pinkett, who hmm. writes, uh, who wrote The Woman, Women Who Run With Wolves. Uh, oh yes, she she's a Jungian expert, and you know her book is is very much um, you know mythological, story based, and and shadow work. So that comes up when you, when you say that, and it's it's very it's written from the feminine. It it is it is a a book about reclaiming the wild feminine. Mm-hmm. But the the shadow the shadow work the sort of the shadow persona that you're ta- or archetype that you're talking about. I mean that comes up a lot in in men's work, uh, mm-hmm, men's mm-hmm. groups in in coaching with different you know coaches that I've I've worked with people who, who you know were coaching me uh, again in in more of that men's work side where you're doing a lot of inner child work um, and you know what was stuffed down into that shadow and bringing that back and uh, you know real or not you know any time that I have sat with shaman or in a, in a men's group and there's some form of a you know a psychedelic experience even without plant medicine so breath mm-hmm. work breath work being one uh drumming etc where you're kind of being led on this journey i mean a hundred percent of the time for me it's been an inner child journey of some kind down into the shadow realm mm-hmm. so Again, I don't know if that's it's just bro science anecdotal stuff, but it's hard to not take Young seriously about, you know, when he talks about the shadow when I have so many experiences that seem to be in the shadow. So what did he mean when he talks about this archetype of shadow? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, on a really simple level, the shadow is the part of who you are as a person that you um, are not conscious of. So it's, it's everything that is within your, within your mind. It's everything that is stored in your memory that you don't have in your conscious awareness at this moment, all of that kind of comprises. I mean, so, and again, this is where the, the terms overlap and it can be difficult to distinguish um, because 
it, then it almost sounds like the shadow is the unconscious, the personal unconscious, but not necessarily. The shadow to Jung is like there is an energy to the shadow of repression and almost like protection. Yeah. Um, so like there, it's the shadow is this part of you that withholds from consciousness things that have been deemed unacceptable um, either by you or, well, ultimately by you but perhaps because of the way that you were raised. So a lot of, and this can kind of come back to the, you know, the sexual conflict that Freud's talking about, right? It's these things from earliest mem- earliest childhood memory, things that we don't have conscious awareness of, but that remain within our memory and which determine how we feel towards people. Um, it can mm-hmm. determine how we so people talk about, you know, early childhood trauma. I think the word trauma can be a little bit overused. Um, Jung didn't talk about... A little bit? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In 2023, um, it's like the word of the year. Sorry, uh, did, sorry, Joel, did I trigger you? Oh, no, no. There's no TWs, <laughs> there's no TWs on the ran- ramble. Hashtag okay. TW. But uh, I, well, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is, you know, everything that this is a young quote, right? Everything that irritates us um, about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. And and yeah. essentially that's shadow, right? It's like, that was, we're coming back to trying to understand that. And in the men's world, men's work world, there's a, it's about, it's about trying to integrate, bring back the components that you've put in there down that down there in the shadow you know whether intentionally or unintentionally to protect yourself mm-hmm. so integrating them so they no longer become these these parts of yourself that you don't understand or that show up but you know in negative ways mm-hmm. uh, and and use them to not to your advantage but to to bring wholeness to your being so that there's not this piece of you cleaved off into some dark under realm uh, absolutely and that, and yeah. that, I mean, do clinical counselors, psychologists, do they, do they, I, I mean, when I've sat with counselors before, there's a lot of going back to childhood, but they, I don't ever recall them mentioning the shadow, you know, mm. self in that. Is there, is there an acceptance? Is there, is that part of the practice of which you do as a counselor to, to look into that, but it's called a different thing? Hmm. We don't, you know, it, I don't think it's conceptualized enough. And I don't think it's, I think the idea of bringing it into therapy can be a little bit daunting because essentially Jungian concepts are not popular concepts and they don't necessarily gel super easily with the, the way that human problems are being talked about in the mainstream nowadays. And so I think, you know, in my own work, first of all, when I, when I was looking for my practicum site initially, I tried so hard to find a Jungian analyst that I could Mm. apprentice under and it was impossible. Like there's, uh, first of all, most of them would be either psychiatrists or psychologists. And so there, I think there's a lot of people that have been deeply influenced or not a lot, but there's people that have been influenced by the work of Carl Jung, but not a lot of people nowadays. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's his ideas have had a deep impact. Like he, his research and understanding of things like the ego, 
the shadow, the unconscious, these, you know, they're a lot more commonly understood nowadays than would be the case if there was no truth to them, I think. Like people have, people use them because they are useful concepts. Um, And so for me, I'm always, because of how deeply impacted I've been personally by Carl Jung's teachings, just in terms of my ability to understand myself um, and my own process of, you know, going through and going through periods of intense anxiety and depression. And um, he really, um, Jung's teachings really helped me to make sense of those experiences in a way that, um, in a way that helped me to realize that they're not, they're not accidental and they're not, they're not illness. Um, it's not illness to, um, to be thrust into and to become deeply aware of the chaos of um, human existence. There's something so uncontrollable about, about human existence. And, you know, we can try as much as we want to, to um, with our big egos to um, control as much as possible and to, you know, to keep everything tied up nice and neat. But, you know, Carl Jung went through his own shadow into or went through his own journey into the shadow, into his own unconscious contents. And he talked about it as a process where he almost lost his mind. Mm. And so he, you know, his understanding of what we call mental illness today, he has a much higher view of what's going on. He he talks about the idea of medicating mental illness as um, really an avoidance of, you know, the most significant process that you can undertake in your life, which is to become yourself. Um, is the way he talks about it is to approach that wholeness that you you mentioned earlier um, to do the shadow work to do the inner healing yeah um, that's oh now we're in it I mean this is it, David Dida again classic menswear like I, 80s 90s I and mean, he's just he's just been so impactful for me and he talks a lot about mm-hmm. how when when men specifically but I, what when the masculine is in the struggle, it is important not to distract ourselves from the struggle, but to be with it, to be with the darkness, mm-hmm. to be with the fear, to be with the anxiety, to be with these things. And and he, you know, he breaks it down so much as to say, you shouldn't even, even your routines, let alone, you know, forget medication, even your daily routines become distractions from becoming comfortable and and knowing that chaos, Mm -hmm. that darkness in you. And so that it no longer, you can free yourself from it. It doesn't control you or you're not trying to control it by medicating it or hiding from it and extrapolating that out. Like the entire structure of our world, our society that we live in is in effect a giant distraction from the self from knowing mm-hmm. thyself and, 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 mm-hmm. the, and that painful journey, that terrifying journey of becoming that, which is why psychedelics are so popular because, you know, it's like in one evening I can kind of have a micro, a micro experience of that 
and it can feel like seven years of struggle and pain and the tears that I wouldn't shed and I wouldn't allow myself to shed because I didn't have the time and I didn't want to let my guard down all right there in one evening, you know, accelerated. And, and so young, I keep saying young, young, right. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You know, his was know it, right. Is that, that's what you're saying. And how is it that he and, and his teachings helped you? You said it really related to you as you were going through these things. How was it? And how was that? How did you practically apply what you were getting from Jung into your life when you were experiencing those things? Mm. Oh, that's a big, there's a big answer to that question. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I ultimately, um, my first response to, you know, like I had felt anxiety and I had had bouts of depression in my teenage years. Um, maybe for days or maybe for a week. I think I, I remember feeling de- like really depressed for a few days at a time once. And I thought, oh God, there's something really wrong with me. And then it lifted and, you know, I, I moved on with my life. And then in my mid twenties, I started to experience these things on a more chronic level. And my first response was go to my doctor. And my doctor gave me two, two diagnoses. Um, for one for anxiety and one for depression and he medicated me for it and he recommended he recommended mindfulness and mindfulness got me to alan watts which got me to carl jung and mindfulness was kind of a stepping stone in a way because but ultimately the thread was um, that i need to take seriously because my life depends on it, essentially, I need to take seriously my own experience of darkness. Um, There is because basically what I was, what I was going through at that time was the categories that I had been relying on to understand the world around me, Um, the good and the bad, you know, there's suffering going on. People are, I was witnessing, you know, people being victimized in some pretty nasty ways within the church Um, And so it was a real, again, it was a loss of faith and a loss of, I had no anchor. And that was really scary until um, I started to get into this Jungian way of thinking by starting to listen to um, first Alan Watts and then Carl Jung directly um, talk about the importance of this journey that I was kind of being swept into. And Carl Jung talks about, he talks about the self um, and he talks about that as kind of the God image within us. Um, This part of us that always beckons us forward and calls us to become more fully ourselves, to become more whole versions of ourselves, um, to let go of the things that we desire and expect so strongly from the people around us. For me, a big um, a big expectation. He, he talks about projections. And so to put it in a Jungian way, I was really projecting, I was projecting my need for maternal comfort and care and protection onto the church. Um, he helped me to see that. And I'd never, I, he gave me the categories to see it. And then I began to realize Mm. this 
need that I had within myself for security and for care and for comfort instead of going inward and, you know, experiencing that need to the full extent um, and seeing what can happen in my own experience, you know, in order to meet it or to see it dissipate as time goes, I was um, spending a lot of energy, um, first of all, latching myself onto the church, expecting a lot and being disappointed by the church continually, and then eventually having this kind of anger towards the church that was, you know, carrying on for years of my life. And Jung helped me to, and so this is just one example, but Jungian, the Jungian understanding of what I was going through helped me to see that ultimately what is going on for me is I am being dragged by the self, this archetype of wholeness, you know, this, this, this archetype of God within me, <laughs> I'm being dragged along kicking and screaming um, towards more wholeness and I'm resisting it. And so it's painful. Um, but Carl Jung talks about individuation as something that we can do consciously or unconsciously. Mm -hmm. um, and so he helped me to realize what was going on and then to partner myself with it and to stop fighting it but to realize you know this disintegration of what i had thought was true is part of a greater journey and it's it's the hero's journey that you know that uh campbell talks talks yeah. about so much um yeah, and it's great. yeah and it's it's the journey that you know that we all need to go on and so for me as a therapist now that's a lot of how i conceptualize the work that i'm doing you know i have clients that come come to me and, you know, this is anxiety is a problem that needs to be solved. It's, it's a, it's an experience that needs to be eradicated. Mm -hmm. And my job, at least as I see it is to sit with their discomfort until they can sit with their own discomfort <laughs> and learn to really, you know, I model, I, what I try to show and it's not, it's not pretend it's real. I try to show deep curiosity for what they're going through, for what they're mm -hmm. seeing, for what they're feeling and thinking. And I try I try to make it clear to them that like, Hey, I don't, I don't see what you're going through as an illness. I don't think it's pathological. I think it's uncomfortable. Um, what I'm hearing is that it is so uncomfortable that you've come now to spend money to talk with me about it. Mm -hmm. So obviously it matters, um, but there's something really important about it. It's not something, it's not something to hide from or to numb. Um, and one thing I, I, I'm, I'll say one more thing and then of be course, done. Please, please. I've, I've been going, but um, one thing that I think is that Jung didn't talk about enough when it comes to this is how much of a privilege it is to be able to spend the time diving into our own shadow and into, you know, into doing this, this work of individuation, because it's not, it's not a casual process and it does involve a lot of time. You know, for me, it was a lot of, a lot of evenings, you know, after my wife had gone to bed, it was a lot of evenings staying up late and doing inner work when I had the time to do it. Yeah. Um, and not everybody has the luxury 
Um, and that's not to say that, you know, there isn't ways to do it even when you're super busy, but the extent to which you, you know, have time and energy to pour into these things is kind of the extent to which you will be able to get something really valuable out of it. So it's, I think it's, I think it's important to say that because a lot of times people just end up feeling guilty because they, they're not doing enough inner work. You know, they're not doing enough shadow work. They're not putting time in. And so they look at where they're at now as not good enough and they need to get somewhere else, but, but they don't have the time and the energy. Um, And I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, we live in a world that does not, it's like you said, we live in a world that is full of distractions against this process of, of really self-knowledge and Mm -hmm. clear knowledge and, you know, with how hard people are having to work just to, just to get by, it makes sense to me that this is not, we're not all undertaking this as much as would necessarily be best for us. So. Whew. Thank you for sharing that. There is, there's a lot there. Uh, some things come to mind. Some things we'll have to, you know, save to, to until our next conversation, but the, um, you know, there's this interesting celebration of our, you know, the, you know, when you live in a world where you have so much wealth and abundance, you live in a sort of society, I should say, you know, like we have here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the next logical thing to 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 focus on, not logical, but the next thing to focus on can sometimes be our problems, right? Where we have so much abundance, mm-hmm. we get to focus on our problems, and that's to your point you know, a real blessing and also in the, in the quickly, you know, falls into becoming a, a curse when everyone's getting to, you know, work on themselves and, and you don't have the time or the energy or the resources to do it. And then it becomes, it becomes a, something that adds to your angst and adds to your frustration. Uh, you know, the alternative is obviously to take the path of the mystic and, and, you know, relinquish all possessions and just focus on, you know, that journey to, to self and knowing thyself and God and the universe and all that stuff, which is, um, is very, is very interesting as we talk about what, you know, these, this Western point of view that we're coming from and, and this being here today. Uh, and, and when you were talking, you know, I thought about, you know, many things I thought about when you, you referenced the example of anxiety being a byproduct of something else, really being a byproduct of your projection for this maternal um, care, nurturing, Mm -hmm. if you will. And it harkens back this notion, idea, and I don't know whose it is, that we have all these little problems, if you will, anxiety, depression, et cetera, et cetera, and and how those show up in our lives. But really, all the little problems just ladder back up to one major problem. And if we fix the one major problem, we can begin to, without any extra effort, remove the smaller ones. They begin to leave our life and leave our leave the way that we show up in the world. And and sometimes this is a this is a great effort. And sometimes this is just an understanding. Oh, like the clarity of oh, that's where this is coming from begins this unwinding and healing process um, simply by knowing. And it reminds me of Anthony, Anthony, Anthony DeMello, who was a 
you know, Jesuit priest who studied all the different philosophies. And he, hmm. he talked a lot about how, you know, the, these labels perpetuate the problems and he uses the example of depression and, he, and anxiety, I think too, but depression specifically, he would say, I am not depressed. There is depression present in me. And it's an experience that I'm having. Mm -hmm. I am not depressed. And it, it, it creates this separation where we can see something for what it is and, and it, it, what it is there and, and begin to approach it from that separation. And it reminds me of another Jungian quote or Carl Jung quote, which is, you know, I'm not what happened to me. I'm what I choose to become, which feels very Alan Watts in as well. And mm -hmm. so there's all these there's all these things that could be entire podcasts of their own and what you just said there, that that wonderful example you gave. And and that's why I said we, we have to have a part two that that gets a little bit more into the mental health side of things. But I want to I want to try and 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 just round out the other three archetypes that we've missed or two archetypes the anima and there there was one more uh, oh yeah so that we can just come to full circle on on these and then you see where we can get in our last sort of 15 minutes here together so mm -hmm. why don't we why don't you so we we did we did the ego and we did the shadow correct mm -hmm. what is we talked about the persona persona yeah yeah, you know, I don't actually, the ego doesn't really, I don't know that it really cat is categorized as an archetype. It maybe it's categorized just kind of as part thing. of the psyche. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, archetypes reflect human ambition, they reflect our values, our beliefs and motivations, etc. The persona, you know, we talked about how that is kind of the energy of how we present ourselves to the world around us. Um, and then the shadow is kind of the opposite of that in a lot of ways. It's the, it's all of not just, not just what we're consciously doing, but it's all that we are keeping out of consciousness. Um, the shadow, you know, is an unconscious part of ourselves that does the work for us. It kind of keeps those things at bay. And, and so then the anima and the animus kind of part of the shadow depending on how you look at it because again it's a question of how much these aspects of ourself are brought into conscious awareness but the anima is the anima animus is basically it tells us something about how Jung understood gender gender expression perhaps um he he taught that um, everyone has essentially a dominant gender um, and that there was another gender that was sort of put into the shadow or left um, typically undeveloped. Um, and, and so the way he, the way he talked about it was, you know, there's boys and girls in boys. Um, there is an anima, which is, you know, that repressed feminine component of the personality um, so he's saying, you know, we are all born with masculine and feminine components in our personality. That's part of our wholeness. Um, but for most men, 
the anima is repressed from boyhood onward. And for most women, the, you know, the masculine is repressed as well. And so that's the animus. And again, as archetypes, um, the, what happens is these are, you know, these are parts of us that are left in the shadow. Um, and depending on how you feel about those parts of yourself, depending on how acceptable they are to you or how taboo they might be to you, they contend, according to Jung, to take on a life of their own. Um, and so they have a level of agency. So there's this part of me as a 37-year-old male. Um, there's a part of me that is, um, you know, I have feminine attributes that since I was a boy, I've tended not to act out as much. I've tended not to express as much. I'm not as, it's not as easy for me necessarily to access certain emotions. Um, it's not necessarily, you know, there's very few, just, you know, one example of this is, you know, I'm just finishing my master of counseling program. And I think in a cohort of 44 people, there was maybe four guys. And so there's the feminine is much more strongly associated with the counseling profession. And there are a lot more um, feminine presenting, you know, there are more women in this profession that are able to access caring and nurturing aspects of their personality, that maternal component that I was looking for in the church. Right. Um, and so that's kind of how the anima animus works. And then the, so he would kind of, and again, uh, there's a lot of Jungian experts these days that are, they're rethinking some of these ways that Jung thought in light of, you know, new ways that we understand gender and sexuality. But um, in Jung's time and, you know, the way that psychology understood these things at the time, that was, you know, he talked about it very simply in terms of, you know, there's men with the masculine and women with the feminine and then the repressed other sides. And so the animus, you know, so the anima would be, you know, the repressed um, feeling, emotion, um, caring, nurturing, things that are typically associated with women. And then, um, and then the repressed, the repressed masculine in women tends to be associated with like assertiveness, dominance, aggressiveness. Yep. He also includes logic in there, but I think that comes across as a little bit insulting as though it's not natural for women to think, but he's not saying it's not natural for women to think he's saying these components of human nature are either masculine or feminine. They're not gender. Um, They're not gender. It's not gender. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's not gender roles. It's yeah. It's masculine or feminine, feminine in nature. And we all have all of them. It's just, it's just that, you know, the gender that we're born into and the one that we express throughout our life determines a lot about um, what becomes part of our ego and what becomes part of our shadow. Yeah. Yeah. David Dida talks a little bit about, or not a little bit, he talks a lot about the masculine feminine energy dynamic and, uh, and the integration of these both within self and within a relationship with someone mm -hmm. who is either of the same makeup, you know, they have you know dominant masculine or dominant feminine and, and opposites and how 
understanding these these dynamics enables us to have healthy balance and and actually you know, freedom and and success is a terrible word but success in our relationships and and it helps it also helps us understand the world around us because David Dida talks a lot about how those dynamics show up in the world natural mm-hmm. natural world nature you know all of these different things and we're always at an interplay with these with these two different dynamics so how then through Jungian therapy does call it a client or a patient find the real self rather than just the the persona that they present to the outside world and integrate all of these components, all these archetypes or into one in, or just understanding how to deal with them all. Like what, what is the, what is the net net of that therapy as it relates to these archetypes? Yeah. I think the first step a lot of times has to do with figuring out whether or not the person has the capacity to take a kind of like a deep dive into the process of individuation. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it it's not always, in fact, most of the time I would say it's not necessarily a comfortable process. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like people going to mindfulness, hoping to just find, um, find that when they meditate, they find, you know, peace instead of anxiety. Really, mindfulness doesn't provide that. It, it brings you more in contact with what's actually going on. It's worse. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And um, but it so it really the first thing is determining how strong a person's ego is. Um, a lot of times, individuation can't happen until the ego has actually been strengthened and reinforced in some ways. A lot of what we talk about with like insufficient childhood experiences, um, you know, when people talk about motherhood, you know, attachment trauma and whatnot, um, from a Jungian perspective, a lot of that has to do with the ego needs to be needs to be reinforced and there needs to be some healing that takes place there. And from an attachment perspective, that first step has a lot to do with just providing providing the interpersonal dynamic for the client that that went you know unmet for so long so you know really listening to the stories that they have to tell listening to um, their descriptions of how they're feeling what they're going through and you know really offering them the care and attention that is um, for some people they didn't get it at all from their mother when they were young and throughout childhood and then for a lot of us, you know, you go through a lot of your life not really receiving that, um, and you 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 learn how to you learn how to live in a relatively cold world by getting what you need from the relationships around you. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't. Most of us don't spend our adult lives. We don't. We well. We don't have the luxury of of uh, maintaining a relationship that's so satisfying for, for most of the time that we are alive on this earth. And so ego strength is about helping a person to be self-sufficient in ways that they have never been. It's helping a person to stand a little bit more on their own two feet, which is not to say relationships are not in, are not an integral part of a good life necessarily. It's just to say that 
um, we will do better in relationships if we find more wholeness and strength within ourselves. So ego strength is kind of is kind of the first piece of it. And then once once it becomes clear that the ego, you know, the person has a sufficient grasp of, and just to kind of like describe what ego strength is, um, I would say it's like it's having a sufficient grasp of what is actually going on and what is fantasy, you know, like what is what is kind of like this projection that's being played out in front of me that has a lot more to do with my needs and wants and expectations than it does with what's actually happening in my life or in this relationship. What's the, what's the quote? See what's, see what's there. Not what you, not what you wish was there. Yeah. Yeah. The leaning into the ego, I, I don't want to derail you too long here, but the leaning into the ego is, is very interesting because there's so much, I guess, in the Eastern traditions and mm. in mysticisms of letting the ego go versus and this, you know, disassociation with, with that ego connection with the higher self, higher consciousness versus solidifying and strengthening that ego so that you can perform better here on planet earth. At least that's what mm-hmm. I think I heard you say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, just kind of going back to the Carl, uh, Carl Jung, Alan Watts conversation. That's a lot of what the, what Jung talks about in his volume on this, the psychology of religion, East and West is this steaming incompatibility between the drive. And it's not just Eastern, but there is, there's a drive within spirituality towards, I don't know if asceticism is the right term, but kind of what we're talking about, the abolition of the ego Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of absorption into nothingness. Yep. And Jung definitely examines all of those ideas in depth. And to paraphrase, I think he kind of comes to a point of realizing that in order to stay alive and you know maintain a sense of sanity throughout life, the ego actually plays a very important role. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually talks about how Essentially, he talks about how neurosis, you know, a lot of what we talk about with anxiety and depression, the difference between that and psychosis, which is like total disconnection from reality, is neurosis, um, anxiety, depression is kind of like an absorption in the personal unconscious where you're you're stuck in your own fantasy world and you, you actually need to access more from the collective. Mm-hmm. And then psychosis is the opposite where you're stuck in the collective and you've completely lost touch with who you are as an individual and you don't have any anchor to your body even. And so you don't really know what's real and what's illusion. And so that kind of, that's kind of like how he understood the importance of the ego, but how it can also, you know, it essentially it can be something that holds us back from individuation and from wholeness, depending on, again, ego is about consciousness, right? So it, it's, it's a question of what is being held back from our consciousness. Whatever we bring into conscious awareness is no longer, um, you know, it, it becomes in a way part of the ego because it's, it becomes part of the conscious self. So the ego does have a role, but he, Jung also talks about the process of individuation 
and really a lot of what we're doing with um with mystical expression and with the desire to to do inner work a lot of it has to do with experiencing moments ex- having having the opportunity to experience what it's like for the ego to temporarily dissolve mm-hmm. um where we get to f- we so we don't we don't cease to exist but we experience wholeness in a way that we don't get to from moment to moment because yeah to go about our daily lives we need the ego in order to distinguish between ourselves and other people we need the ego you know but we can have experiences we can guide ourselves into experiences and jungian psychotherapy in all of its forms should be an experience that helps people to to really go on that journey towards wholeness at least i hope that you know in the time i spend with clients i'm really i'm helping them to see what they're experiencing in a in a way that makes them want to lean into it a little bit more and not not to simply avoid it yeah Whew. again i've done two of those <laughs> the <laughs> so my suspicion that you would be a fantastic guest on the show and have so much to share was true. And I feel like you're just getting going. (laughs) Uh, That we are at the tip of this iceberg of of Jungian and, uh, and beyond. So my hope, dear cousin of mine, is that we can do a part two. I'd love to. And continue with you know this this union this union discussion, but also to bridge that into your master's thesis, or as you're calling it, your capstone, and and bring it all back to this idea of like what is mental health? Um, is it biological? You can talk about the mental health myth. Um, talk about again furthering this journey, this very uncomfortable journey of. Mm-hmm discovering the self of integrating the ego of integrating the shadow of doing the work being vulnerable and uh, and just and just keep rocking um you're down for that yeah i would love to i could talk about young all day and all that <laughs> well there there's i mean there's again you're you're just it, it, like i said it just feels like we're just now tapping into the the him and 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 now my head's starting to spin. You know, what I mean? yeah. <laughs> my head. That's, starting... that's what Jung. That's what Jung does to you. And I had I had questions about the gender roles side of things and how you know how his his thoughts are are on that are relating to you know what's happening in today's with the climate today and what we're and what we're talking about about gender and 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 those mm-hmm. things. That might even be a totally different podcast. But there's the point is it's fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. Do you talk about any of this stuff on, online? Is there anywhere where somebody could engage with you between our conversations uh, or find you? Not yet. I mean, I'm, I do have a website, but that's just really an introduction to me as a counselor. Once I'm done my master's degree, I'm going to be, I'm going to be having a different conversation with you, which is, which is how to um, become more of a, of an ideas person online and how to actually set myself <laughs> up that way, which is your expertise. So 
I appreciate that. I do. I, I, I feel like that is a, that is its own head spinning uh, journey of how to, how to I, communicate. I can give you, what about my Tinder profile? Would that yeah, be helpful? Yeah, there you go. Your t- <laughs> <laughs> that, that works for, uh, I actually, we shouldn't go there. <laughs> maybe, maybe we shouldn't go there, but Luke, that was, that was fantastic. And I, it just reminds me how much I, I enjoy talking to you and miss, uh, miss having a beer and, 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 and going, going deep on whatever it was that, you know, that we were thinking in the moment. So we will be back. Yeah. We shouldn't yeah, be, this we should not be, quenched, sorry. This, this quenched my thirst. I missed it as well. It was good to, it was good to talk this stuff through a bit. That good, uh, that good Slackwater IPA that you found. Slackwater? <laughs> yeah, was it Slackwater? Slackwater? I, I you think so. Be. Yeah. Are you, yeah. are you being paid? Are you being paid to, to no. say that? I wish I had a beer sponsor, <laughs> but we'll, 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 let's try and, and not be too long in between so we can do our best to pick up the momentum we, you know, we achieved here. And, yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. And I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Okay. I'll talk to you again soon, Joel. You too. Bye. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. We know there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others and all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace. Hey, thanks so much for making it to the end of the podcast. I know that my self and of course my guests really appreciate you listening all the way through you know, they put a lot of time into their projects and their ideas and and you know, they're very thoughtful with how they they bring themselves and show up on the show and so i'm really grateful that uh, that you've listened all the way through you know we don't have ads on the show i think i don't think red circles running ads but i wanted to take just a quick second to say that hey if the spirit moves you you know this podcast can be brought to you by some of the wild, fun, wacky, creative things I do. I always try and stay in the practice of creativity, whether that's writing or working on films or uh, just about anything. I, I try and be very diligent that I'm, I'm doing it consistently. And so, you know, as a result of that, I put some things out and, and I'd love for you to check them out. You know, one is uh, Getting Naked, The Bare Necessities of Entrepreneurship and Startups. That's my book and you can get it anywhere where books are sold online like Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or Indigo. And uh, it's the story of my company, Naked Underwear, the first company I started that went from a failed attempt on Dragon's Den, um, that's your Shark Tank in America, to the NASDAQ and was eventually divested. And it has a ton of tips and ideas for startups, very practical advice, but it's always also interwoven with my own story, which I think entrepreneurs and creatives and artists can really, uh, would really relate to, uh, you know, it has almost 155 ish star, four and a half star reviews. And I think people, if you're going through, you know, a startup needs some motivation, needs some ideas, just want to feel like, Hey, there's a kindred spirit out there. You know, it's a great book to check out. Also, you can check out my blog at joelprimus.com forward slash blog, where I write a 
couple of blogs a month about a variety of topics, a lot of stuff on fitness, things like how to know when to quit, a lot of personal development, psychedelics, all kinds of things. Everything's written from a personal lens. And, uh, you know, it's just a great way to digest a little bit of hopefully fun and helpful and inspiration. And of course, keep checking out this podcast, The Ramble on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever your podcatcher of choice is. Thanks again and have an awesome day, week, month, whatever it is.